Welcome to the Gods of Tomorrow podcast, where we discuss religious deconstruction, secular humanism, political activism, and epistemology. Together, we explore how to solve human problems with human solutions. We deconstruct, we activate, and then most importantly, we live our fucking lives. I am your host, Josh Ra, and you are the gods of tomorrow. Alright, alright, alright. Let's uh let's do this shit. Welcome back everybody to Gods of Tomorrow. It is episode 21. I'm Josh Ra. You can call me Josh. Are you having Maybe some experiences where you are hearing the voice of God, hearing demons, hearing angels. Are you unsure how to exactly separate those voices that are coming about in your head? And has there been somebody who's told you who they are, what they are, what they mean? Well, hopefully we'll get some answers today to what all of that means. I'm very excited to invite Imus to today's podcast. Um, you may recognize her from TikTok. We've only known each other a short while Um that we've met online. I'm very excited mm-hmm. to see you. How are you doing today? I'm hanging in there. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing well. Um, I, I enjoy watching your content and the videos that you put out there, especially because they're so educational in nature. But for those of you that really don't know you, Imus, can you just give us some background into your knowledge about language, language development, speech? Um, how, why do you know the science behind what's happening in the brain? Sure. So I've been involved in communication sciences or something adjacent to that for about 15 years. Um, I have a master's degree in communication sciences and disorders. So I work as a medical speech language pathologist. Um, Currently, I work in an acute care hospital where I specialize in swallowing disorders in adults. Mm -hmm. But prior to that, I used to work with children with developmental disabilities and primarily in augmentative and alternative communication systems. Okay, so we have a little bit of a shared background there because I have spent most of my career working with children with developmental disabilities in residential placements who um, have a number of different speech impairments or disabilities in some kind developmentally. Uh, And I know, and I've worked alongside with speech pathologists a lot in terms of like developing systems for them. Um, can, Can you let me know a little bit about maybe some of the things that you've seen in terms of maybe speech impairments that are developmentally uh, troublesome for these kiddos? Sure. So I think it's important to talk about um, what speech is versus what is language. So mm-hmm. speech is the physical production of sounds. And a lot of children, or rather all children, go through developmentally appropriate, whatever that means, right, mm-hmm. uh, speech errors. And we kind of know that they're errors. And I'll talk about why I put that in quotes in a moment. Um, because we all understand them regardless of these mistakes. Um, and then they eventually grow out of them. And it's sort of in a, a developmental timeline. There's little graphs that show you, you know, like R in American English is one of the last formed sounds. Um, difficulty with uh, producing the S sound is very, very common. Some people make it an interdental, so it becomes, and some people make a lateralist, so it becomes Mm-hmm. Um, so that's common, and, and there are millions of children all over the world that go and see a speech therapist to try to help with that. And the reason it matters is because, one, we want to make sure that people are understood when they're spoken, when they speak. And my thing is, if it is understood, it is correct. Um, I, I, I definitely go along a linguistic descriptivism mm-hmm. uh, viewpoint. Um, I think there's a place for prescriptivism, but it is limited. Um And also, it can interfere with children's ability to acquire literacy skills. So if they're trying to sound things out, um, their morpheme and grapheme conversions can be um, interrupted by phonological or speech impairments. And phonological impairments, when I say that, I mean that some children develop articulation difficulties, so they're having trouble physically producing speech. And because it's on certain sounds, and those sounds occur in certain positions of words, there's a pattern to their errors. So it becomes a phonological process as opposed to just, you know, I'm having trouble making a T or something like that. 
Yeah, I'm not. And they have games, and it gets very involved with that. So, I, I'm curious, and I don't know if you know the answer to this or not. I don't know if you know the answer to a lot of the questions I'm going to ask you. But for the for the individuals that are having these issues and expressing their speech, is it is there also an internal struggle in where they're hearing it differently, or they believe that they're pronouncing it in a way that it's not being performed? I mean, how, how does that external and internal speech differ from the perspective of the child? So, so that's a great question, um, and it's very specific, and it's important for us to know what is happening internally with children when they demonstrate um, speech or phonological disorders, because it changes the way that we provide treatment to them. So some children have difficulty physically getting their speech muscles in the right position at the right time. Um, whether that's due to um, a brain injury or some kind of motor impairment. Um, one that is relatable to a lot of people is cerebral palsy. Um, so oftentimes in a disorder like that, the person hears all of the speech sounds correctly. <laughs> um, they understand where their tongue or whatever is supposed to be, but their brain misfires. I think that would be like the best way to describe it. And in those, in that category of speech disorders, whether that's in children or as an adult after they've acquired a brain injury, such as like having a stroke or developing a tumor, mm -hmm. that's called dysarthria. That is the category of what that is. Mm -hmm. um, then we have a category of speech disorders where it's um, a motoric problem. So they can physically place the muscles where they're supposed to be at the right time and their perception of where those are and what they sound like is correct. Mm -hmm. But the motor plan is what gets disrupted. And apraxia of speech has a very explicit clinical presentation. And we would be here for three hours if I tried to explain what that looks like. But I tell my clinical students that I supervise um, you'll know it when you see it. Once you see it once, you're going to always be able to pick that out. And again, we can see this developmentally in children as they learn to talk, or we can see this acquired after a stroke or a brain injury. And Those are two categories <laughs> that you know are kind of the main ones. Mm -hmm. And then the third category that I would talk about is just making an error because you're having difficulty getting your lips there as you're learning, or a person may have a hearing impairment or an auditory processing difficulty where they're having a difficulty discriminating between two sounds, so they become confused. Mm -hmm. And depending on the amount of hearing loss and whether or not that child and their family have chosen for verbal language to be their primary communication source, it's difficult to call that an error or not. So if everyone in the house is hearing and uses verbal speech as their primary communication modality, mm -hmm. then that's a challenge because that's going to inhibit their ability to communicate functionally. But if you have a child who you know has deaf parents and that child is also deaf or maybe partially hearing or hard of hearing, those speech errors are they're not errors. They're just a consequence of their deafness, and it doesn't. It's not really relevant to their ability to communicate in a way that's functional for them. Um, so it becomes, you start to get very kind of nitpicky in that category of things, but those are the three main. So I, I appreciate you laying some groundwork and, and I think there's additional groundwork that we kind of get into until I dive into the, how this kind of impacts spirituality and growth in, in the spiritual realm for humanity, primarily in regards to what you've seen between external and internal um, speech and language for the individual. It, and again, I don't know if this has really been studied well, but are they hearing that internal speech in the way that they're pronouncing it, like in terms of their inner voice? Does their inner voice speak in the same form of expression as we see externally displayed to us? Um, I have read some studies that, that look at like those that primarily do sign or even individuals, um, you know, that I know this isn't speech, but the, those that may be vision impaired may see images even in their dreams that are expressed differently than those of us that see things visually. Sure. So, so I'm wondering if audio-wise we see it in the same way that their inner voice is expressed maybe in a different way than what we see expressed externally. Does that make sense? I think so. Um, let me try and, and break that down so I make sure that I'm um, answering your question correctly or getting sure. to the point that you're trying to get to. 
Um, I think the, the idea of inner voice is sort of a universally understood thing, but it's something that's very, very difficult to study, right? right, right. And just take a picture of the brain. I did see, I think it was Scientific American recently published that there is some preliminary research being done where they're using some type of brain scan and looking at those patterns and then generating sentences from it. So they'd say like, they'd have the person think about um, something they wouldn't tell them what it was. And then they would generate language from that. And I don't understand. Uh, it, it, it wasn't like a, a scholarly article. So I couldn't get into the nitty gritty of it. It was like just for the general public, right. but they were somehow doing that. And this, and what they were able to generate off the scans was pretty darn close to what the person was thinking about. So I think we're approaching um, a method to, you know, map out thoughts to language and what that looks like in brain centers. Um, mm. But that would be sort of like a neurocognitive scientist who'd be able to explain that better than me. In undergrad, um, my research was actually in dyslexia. Mm. And there had been some um, misinformation, I'm going to call it, spreading around the internet at the time that the reason people struggle with dyslexia is because they don't have an inner voice and I said, that sounds outrageous. Yeah, I, <laughs> there's no way. It feels outrageous to me too, because my inner voice is always going. <laughs> oh, yeah. Do, do you struggle with dyslexia? Not at all. Okay. No, okay. no. I always so, have an inner voice and I'm always hearing. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so what I did was I took a survey. And again, you got to trust that people are telling you the truth. I had a couple people draw pictures on it and actually fill it out. And that creates problems for data. But um, I, I described symptoms that people have when they're having inner voice. Like when I read, I hear my own voice saying the things out loud. Right. When I read, I hear someone else's voice. There was probably like 50 questions. And then I asked questions about dyslexia type symptoms. You know, when I look at letters, they move around or whatever it was. It's just it's going back a long time ago. And there was absolutely no correlation. This is just one study that one person did of 10 years ago. But there was no correlation between um, someone experiencing inner voice type behaviors and someone experiencing dyslexia type symptoms. Mm -hmm. And you know, I'd like to imagine that if this was repeated with hundreds of thousands of people, we would find the same things. But who knows? You know, correlation is not causation. Right. You know that. Um, but it's a very difficult thing to study. Now, what we do understand to be true is what people who are neurodivergent, who can um, communicate these ideas, have explained to us. And I think the movie about Temple Grandin is probably uh, one of the best examples for people outside of the fields to try to understand what inner dialogue or inner voice looks like in somebody who is neurodivergent. Um, and it does a really great job of showing, like, I think there's a scene where they were saying, uh, they're talking about doors. And you see her flash through, like, a reel of every door she's ever seen in her life. Mm -hmm. Which is really interesting because it demonstrates something that we understand to be true in normal development, mm -hmm. which is hyperextension and hypoextension which I'm sure is something you've observed in your own students or your own children. So I know you're a father. I'm, I have a young son myself. And we talked about this a little bit on Captain Dadpool's show, but I'll, I'll kind of reiterate it quickly. So hyperextension would be if I label my son's uh, dog as dog. We have a dog in our house. He's a brindle mastiff. He's enormous, right? And hyperextension would be all things with four legs are now dog. Right. Hypo extension would be that our dog is dog and that's it. Mm -hmm. He never, you know, eventually he does, but he doesn't for a period of time ever generalize the term dog to all things that kind of look like timber, mm -hmm. <laughs> but don't exactly. And something that I found in research and also I found clinically in practice when I'm trying to teach uh, language skills to people with neurodivergence type um, presentations is that when I teach a word, I have to provide 30 or 40 different exemplars of that word to make sure that it's generalized. Because what we find is that what I think a huge error in some of the um, therapy and education materials that are provided to neurodivergent children is that they'll teach a word like ball and they'll show one picture of a ball 
And that student will think that that card with that green ball on it is ball and that's it. And they're trying to teach that card so that that child will connect the picture of that ball with all the balls that they could ever want in the world and then pick that up and hand it over to communication partner to receive that item. And I think we're training the wrong skill, <laughs> you know, so I, that's really difficult. So I remember I had an example of cut. I'll never forget this. So I had someone cutting someone's hair. I had someone sawing a piece of wood. I had like probably 15 or 20 examples, but let's just think about those two. Someone cutting someone's hair, someone cutting a piece of paper, and someone sawing a piece of wood. Mm -hmm. And the person was holding the saw like this. I want you to guess what the student labeled that as. Like for the gun symbol? So you're talking it was, about, that's uh, sort of how they were holding the yeah. handle of this. It's like this. Yeah. You think they said maybe gun? Yeah. They said point. Oh, really? Okay. Which isn't wrong. No, it's and not. She, in my opinion, she is correct. The exemplar <laughs> that I chose, the picture to her, the highlight of that was the person's mm -hmm. hand and not the fact that the saw was moving through this, mm -hmm. this piece of wood. And another thing is that I chose photographs to represent verbs. Maybe we should have used video clips, yeah. right? So I so learned something action, from that. Yeah, it's right, I learned something from that. And I point, I said, you're absolutely right. That person is pointing with their hand, aren't they? You know, mm -hmm. so it just goes to show that, you know, all children do this to some degree, but in certain types of neurodivergency, it's extreme to where it interferes with that person's ability to use their language in a way that's functional for them. Are we seeing an increase of this? I mean, I, I see neurodivergency all the time now through social media. Sure. Everyone talks about it. Um, I, I don't know the fullness of all those that have actually been diagnosed with it that are claiming to sure. have neurodivergency, but is there an increase of this that's happened in the past several decades that it is, or is it just that we're better at diagnosing it and seeing it now? That's a great question to which I don't have a good answer for. Um, you know, sometimes I read things that are demonstrating, you know, oh, look, more people have an, are on the autism spectrum or something mm -hmm. like that. And then other times I'll read an article or something that like, oh, maybe we're just better at diagnosing it. Mm -hmm. um, I think we're embracing the idea of a lot of constructs being a spectrum, mm -hmm. whether that's neurodivergency, whether that's gender expression. Um, and a lot of people are very uncomfortable with the idea that, you know, the world is not yes and no. <laughs> I would agree with that. I think I... it's also a product of that. I think there's been a cognitive shift in the way that we classify things. Mm -hmm. So there's more opportunities to give things labels and names. And, you know, not everybody is on board with that cognitive shift. But there is definitely we've seen as, as we started to categorize individuals into these different groups that there are different ways of each of these groups processing language specifically in terms of what regions of their brain highlight and how they essentially associate or how sure. they utilize the information that's around them. Um, mm -hmm. Is there any clue as to any factors that are influencing that outside of just basic genetics? I mean, is it environment? Is it a modern age of being plugged into, you know, constant stimuli in the environment? Um, do we know? It's a great question. I'm sure there's some wonderful theorists <laughs> and neuropsychologists that could answer something like that. Um, I think trying to like find a good way to like summarize what I'm thinking about that, you know, what is, what is, I think there used to be a culture of just accepting people for how they are so no one looked further into what was going on yeah and whether that's for better or for worse so you know how that looks in different cultures and in different contexts is very different um and i would be you know speaking out of turn if i was saying this culture they do this and this culture do that but, you know, in, in the United States in particular, it was for worse because mm -hmm. the idea was if a person was not, you know, did not meet the cognitive or developmental standards mm -hmm. of whatever, whoever made the standards, they put them somewhere that they never interacted with anybody else and basically left them to die. And I know that's a really harsh thing to say, but it's true. Mm -hmm. you look at things like Willowbrook and all that. Yeah. Um, it was for worse. So I think, unfortunately, we are 
trying to repair some of that by providing as much opportunities as possible and saying, hey, all of these people have skills. They can learn things. They can have meaningful, full lives. We just have to teach it a different way. And whether that's for a person who will reach adulthood and never be fully potty trained and doesn't use, you know, doesn't have a, a system of communication that works best for them, or somebody who's, you know, an active member of society in the workforce who has ADHD that's never been treated. You know, there's a spectrum, right, of yeah. all those things. But what people value and are willing to, um, you know, provide accommodations for and what they aren't varies depending on where you are in the country, your resources, and your cultural background. Yeah, I'm smiling a little bit, and not to be cruel, but I think about how in our modern society, we oftentimes now label these people and we put them through systems and programs and treatments and modalities that sometimes work kind of well, and sometimes we're showing them pictures talking about verbs. <laughs> and it's not necessarily oh, working so well. And it's, and it's our intent to do well, but we don't always know the best way of actually helping them understand the world as we see it, or we're trying to help them see that world the way that we see it. And we're just ineffective in testing that out for a number of years before we finally find the way that gets it right, which has kind of been the process for, I don't want to say 120 years of us working mm -hmm. with people from a scientific viewpoint in mental health and developmental disabilities in a number of different ways and trying to find the right way to respond to this. That is humanitarian in nature and no longer intentionally just causing harm because we don't want to deal with it. I agree with you 100%, and especially that I work in the medical field. There are two enormous barriers to, I think, getting people the right support, health literacy, and counseling services. Mm -hmm. I spend most of my day not diagnosing swallowing disorders, not treating swallowing disorders, but explaining what a swallowing disorder is to a person who can't swallow. Yeah. That is what, or explaining it to their healthcare team because medicine has become very specialized. Your doctor does not know everything. That's why they consult an expert, right? And <laughs> yes. that's not to say, oh, look at me. That's to say that my one job in the hospital is to check people swallowing. That is what I do eight and a half hours a day, five days a week, right? Mm -hmm. So it's my job to know everything there is to know about swallowing as best I can, right? Mm -hmm. That's why there's so many specialists, right? For better or for worse. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I would say at least half my day is spent in the counseling and providing health literacy to people and resources and not so much physically going to do things like check a person's swallow or x-ray a person's mm -hmm. swallow or whatever it is. Um, and that becomes even more complicated when I'm diagnosing and treating communication disorders in adults, because you have a person who's been married to somebody else for 40 years, and now they can't say their name at all. You know, what does that look like? I'm not going to fix it in the three weeks they're in therapy yeah. on the rehab unit. No. But that, that three weeks is spent is, yes, certainly I'm providing, you know, evidence-based language therapy to this person, but most of that time is spent figuring out what they're going to do when they go home mm -hmm. because therapy isn't forever. It has an end point and their life and their communication, their marriage doesn't. Right. Right. So it's a challenge. And, and that's part of the reason I sort of moved to adults because um, while I very much enjoy um, working with individuals with developmental disabilities and in particular augmentative and alternative communication devices, that's probably one of my favorite things in my mm -hmm. field I didn't think I was the right fit to provide like counseling and support services to uh, parents and families in those settings. But I feel like I do a really good job of that in the adult setting. So it, I, I want to come back to children, even though I know mm -hmm. you haven't worked with them or currently don't as much as you did before. Right. But with adults, when you see <clears throat> language issues that they're experiencing, are most of these progressive like do they relate back to things that may have shown early signs of language issues in childhood or in adolescence that are now emerging into later adulthood so primarily what i see in adults are acquired language and speech disorders so they were typically developing mastered their first language sometimes i work with patients where english is not their first language or they speak multiple languages which is we could spend three hours on that in a separate show but um and now something has happened 
they have a brain tumor, they've had a stroke, they got into a, a, a wreck. Um, around here, a lot of people drive ATVs inebriated. So that's a common cause of traumatic brain injury, unfortunately. They lost oxygen, something happened. Um, or the progressive ones are more, you know, actual diseases like vascular dementia, Parkinson's disease, Huntington's disease, um, ALS, things of that nature. Um, so I see a combination, but most of my patients, it's acquired. Everything was going fine, and then something happened. And now all of that has been disrupted, along with other things like difficulty swallowing, difficulty walking, difficulty using the hands, um, difficulty with attention. I spent a lot of time working on patients' ability to attend to things, which you know, if you want to talk about early childhood, we have to integrate the two sides of our brain and crossing midline, right? And what that means for all kinds of skills, whether that's putting on a sock, holding a ball or reading. And one of the most common difficulties I see a lot of patients have transiently when they're in the hospital is, hey, this person, you know, they let's, for example, this person got really bad bout of COVID, right? They were on a ventilator for two weeks, right? When they come off that ventilator, a lot of times they'll be attending to one side of their body and not the other because of the way they were turned in bed. I might present them with something and they can still read. They're demonstrating the ability to read it, but they're only reading things left to midline, left to midline, right? Because they've been staring at a beige wall on massive like fentanyl for two weeks, you know? So the brain needs time to come back. So I spend so much time on um hemispheric attention and crossing midline more than I ever thought or ever talked about in graduate school um and it's been a definitely like a, a learn as you go experience that I feel like I, I have a pretty good grasp of now but we have great physical and occupational therapists too that help with that and you know we have to learn about what that looks like in childhood as well so we can kind of try to repair it when it's lost in adulthood the thing that comes from this conversation the most uh, for listeners are listening in and I am so interested in hearing your thoughts on the Simus. Uh, but when I when I hear all the different things and working in social welfare myself, child welfare and working in facilities, um, residential facilities and working at behavior management, all these things, I know this is harsh to say, but when I work with individuals, I I start to recognize how many animalistic tendencies we have and how much it's like it's almost like working with a life form and you recognize how all these things are intertwined. When you're going through physical therapy, it's about strengthening those muscles and doing things to get that area fixed up. When you're working with the brain, it's about using certain mechanisms and tools and, and modalities to get people to focus more and return their attention and, and change and grow and develop and, and make progress in certain ways. And I think that sometimes it's really hard bringing this back into the religious aspect of things for sometimes those that have a world belief that is filled with miracles or miracle thinking, miracle believing, and a world where um, you see people as being these um, individuals that are made in the, the image of God that are perfect in the way that they're created outside of the sinful bodies that they're in, and seeing them as ones that really have to adapt and change and uh, uh, be a part of their environment. And, and constantly when they go through experiences in life that create that divide between them and their environment. They have to readapt and they need professionals to help them essentially get their animal body and animal brain back into mm -hmm. an adaptation to be able to fit and function again within this environment that they're in. It's not like they just wake up the next day and it's like, I, my brain totally works again, or now I read correctly, or now language works correctly, or now my muscles mm -hmm. function correctly. It, it's such a healing process that takes real science and real work and understanding biology and all the, in, in biochemistry and all of these things to really be able to provide the healthcare that's needed for them. Hopefully that makes sure. sense. But it, it's just I like. Think, <laughs> I think what feels challenging about saying animalistic is um, I think uh, maybe a term that would feel better and be a better description of what you're talking about would be primitive. Mm -hmm. Because when we're born, we have like primitive reflexes. When we say primitive, we don't, we don't mean to imply an idea that um, someone is acting in a way that is subhuman, less than, or pre-human. Mm -hmm. It's that when you're born, you have a lot of um, skills and reflexes and behaviors that are solely focused on survival. Mm -hmm. 
And what we see in certain people who have developmental disabilities or neurodivergency is that we expect over time in an environment with reciprocal social interaction and yes. language exchange that these primitive things that we're born with extinguish and are replaced with socially reinforced behaviors and expectations. Mm -hmm. And what's happening for a lot of individuals is that that doesn't happen. So to watch a person who is three, seven, 15, or 45 um, behave in ways that are connected to primitive behaviors and responses that we're born with can be challenging when we live in a society that functions and thrives off of very intricate, complex, and difficult to understand social interactions. Mm -hmm. And as we've learned, especially with um, people who um, go through therapy to understand social cues and social interaction, is that um, it's not an easily taught thing. And I, I always like to point out that language and pragmatics and social skills are acquired things. Mm -hmm. They aren't explicitly taught. And that is why when we're in a situation where we have to take a person and try to explicitly teach these skills, it doesn't reach the fluency and the ease that their typically developing counterparts experience because they were born with a brain and a body that extinguished naturally primitive responses in favor of social responses. Yeah, I want to hold that thought and thank you so much for working it that way. But I want to tie mm -hmm. that to just this quick question, which I think will only take you a couple of seconds to explain. When do people develop their internal language versus their expressive language in terms of development? And when does inner talk start developing? So that's a great question. I don't have a good, like, the average is two and a half. I don't, I'd have to literally look into that. That's okay. I know the but, answers. I just thought you would tell them. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah, so just... if you let me know, that's great. Because I don't know a specific age. I am more aware of certain behaviors and language mm -hmm. skills that we see acquire that suggests that the shift has happened. Mm -hmm. it, which, yeah. Those will be good to add into this. We, I, from what I know from my years in, as working as a behavior specialist is mm -hmm. that we typically see that by the time a infant is six months to nine months years old, they have the same ability to understand commands as you might give your your pet dog that's in the house. They can understand mm -hmm. internal stuff by six months to nine months where you can say food, drink, mom, dad, and they may not be able to express it, but they can internalize mm -hmm. it and understand it and they know the associations. That internal piece is there. Uh, in terms of just internal recognition, expressive language, of course, yes. Uh, we might see that coming out about one and a half, but be even more formalized at two and a half. The inner talk with young children, we typically see um, them talking to themselves, as you've probably seen through your own child, you know, anywhere from like three to five where you're talking externally, even maybe up to six years old, but usually about seven or eight, you really see them now internally speaking to themselves, even when they're taught to read to themselves within school, sure. um, you start having this internal voice that develops at that time. Uh, my, my question to build off of that, which you can add to those and comment on those, uh, those thoughts, but my question is, is how does culture impact how you're processing internal thoughts in terms of like how you're recognizing things when, when you're talking about individuals that are born in different regions of the world and those pro-social behaviors that are being taught in a socio-cultural piece that is essentially mapping over the, the primitive brain to give you context how mm. does that impact you based on where you're raised does, does it change so i think there's two areas of language and social development that I think are really accessible to people who aren't actively working in this field like you and I are. And the first one is um, eye contact. So there has been this push for years, and I'm sure you've experienced this too, about eye contact being a goal. Let me say this once and ever again. Eye contact should never be a goal on an IEP, for an IFSP, for anybody, unless a person with neurodivergency wants that as a goal for themselves that they have created. Okay. Eye contact, and we have seen this, I'm sure you've seen this clinically as well. What you're really looking for is joint attention because joint attention is a prerequisite skill to teaching other skills. Mm -hmm. And we typically see in typically developing people eye contact followed by joint attention and then we can teach things right mm -hmm. look at the ball it's green i throw it into the hoop it's basketball like we want all these things right right but when you look at 
neurodivergent people learning skills, how much eye contact and joint attention they demonstrated while learning that skill had absolutely no correlation whatsoever or no predictive factor to how well they learned that skill. So, you know, for example, my own son, you know, he like will seem like he's not paying attention to something, but he remembers the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So just because he doesn't have his eyes fixed on whatever the target is that you're pointing out doesn't mean he's not taking in information, right? Because he's little. He's a five-year-old boy. That's what little boys do, you know? But at his age, that's considered appropriate, right? Mm -hmm. But if that same kid is 15 and doing those things, oh, no, we got to work on eye contact and all those things, when it's not an actual, you know, thing. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing I think is really... uh, interesting and easy for people to access when they don't work in the field actively. The second thing I would point out is narrative skills. Mm -hmm. And this has been really interesting as a mother to watch my own son's narrative narration skills grow. Right. I'm sure you can like almost parents can remember the first time their kid like told them something about something that happened when they weren't around. It's a really huge cognitive and linguistic moment in development Mm -hmm to share and a lot of t- it's kind of started with me with my own son saying oh what happened at school today and he'd be like it's a secret <laughs> that's what he used to say to me it's a secret mm-hmm. and then eventually he'd be like um there was goldfish you know like so that was the highlight of his day he remembered mm-hmm. that there was a snack that he enjoyed and now he comes home and says um sarah said this and then you know john said that and then i didn't like you know like it's a whole thing mm-hmm. so to watch that develop The way that um, individuals tell a story tells us a lot about their culture and what is important to them and what's not. I remember reading something about what narratives look like for adults, like what are stories that, you know, people tell. And in certain cultures, you know, we tend to have at least what I grew up with or I guess American stories or what's traditionally read in American homes to children would reflect uh, primarily European uh, uh, origin stories like Cinderella or whatever, right. uh, Scandinavian for uh, what is it? What's the Frozen? Isn't that based off like a Hans Christian Andersen? Uh, I don't know. Something like that. I like, I like the real story more where they kill each other, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. But <laughs> I think a lot of our, our children's tales are, are heavily influenced by European and Scandinavian origins. Mm-hmm. Um, where there's like, there's a, a main character and then there's a problem and they do something about the problem that everyone's happy at the end. That tends to be the general thing, right? In some cultures, the story is, you know, Mary was really happy because her mom and her went to the store and got a new dress. That's it. That's the narration. And for us, we're like, and then what happened? Mm-hmm. You know, because culturally, that's not what we anticipate in a narration. Mm-hmm. But in that culture, it's totally appropriate. And I've observed this as an adult. And I live in a major city and work with a lot of people from different backgrounds who English is their second language. And they might be telling me a story. And the way that they narrate it to me is not a way that I would have told that story at all. And it's so interesting to watch how it's such a wonderful and beautiful reflection of how their culture is and how different it is mm-hmm. from mine. And it's still a great story, and we were able to connect on a social and emotional level, but it's so different from what I would have generated because my background was different. And this is one of the interesting things that I see, especially between Eastern and Western theology and mythology, mm-hmm. the way they conceptualize ideas about the universe and their place in it, is that it comes from a different place of storytelling, and it has conceptualizations and ideas that aren't familiar to the culture across the sea and so it makes it really hard for it to stomach and process it and understand it in the same way and I imagine it's because you have parents institutions uh, what have you education systems that are reinforcing concepts and ideas built around language that sure. are familiar to those that are being raised in that way they, they have those those social cultural pieces that are again overlaying over the primitive mind that is allowing them to understand something that those in other cultures cannot understand. So they, mm-hmm. I'm going to start shifting us a little bit here, but they start to see ideas of divinity in a different way. They see spiritualism right. in a different way. Uh, they mm-hmm. understand demons and darkness and, and their own aspect of soul and self. All of those things begin to be perceived. And, and I'm thinking primarily, like you look at Indian culture versus you know American culture, it's, it's like black and white. It's like they have a hard time even communicating to each other because the initial language that is presented to them early on has shaped that brain so that not only is their inner talk differently, but the language they use in their perceptions of the world around them um, 
have completely changed like the predictive processes as well. To be clear, when you say Indian culture, do you mean the the subcontinent of India or Native Americans? Oh, I'm sorry, subcontinent of Indians. I, okay, I, so I, I, I just wanted yeah, to... I always call Native Americans natives, so... <laughs> so, do I, so do I, but I, you know, I, I just wanted to make sure I knew I was following what you were saying. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've recently heard a lot of adults um, say some pretty interesting, uh, use some pretty interesting terminology to describe people groups, and... Mm-hmm. Um, I've learned not to assume that everyone is as um, culturally appropriate as you and I are. So when you said that, I just wanted to make sure that we were on the same page about that. Um, what you brought up is tremendously important, and I, and I think this is going to tie in exactly what you're talking about in concept of deity, because this is sort of a, an area that I've gotten into discussions um, with a, a couple people on TikTok about. I won't call them out right now, but um, maybe we had some uh um scholarly disagreements mm-hmm. um there is a book called don't sleep there's snakes i'm pretty sure that's what it's called sweet jesus and, okay okay and um <laughs> the person who wrote it um was a missionary mm-hmm. who went and stayed with and learned the language of the piraha people are you have you ever heard of this people group i have not but i i'm not even gonna guess where are they from um, that's myself. a great question. I think they. I'm going to look it up because I don't want to misspeak, especially about a people group that I don't personally represent. Yeah, that's why I wasn't going to guess. I was like, that's. that's um, let me right. see. I want to say they live. They're an indigenous <laughs> people of like Brazil. Let me double check. Well, if that's the case, I'm going to be right. And if that is, yes, they are an indigenous people <laughs> of the Amazons of Brazil. I may be aware of them. Then I may have learned about it in a class in college, and that's why it sounds familiar. But I, okay, I, I, not not familiar enough to talk about it after twenty years. For sure. <laughs> so what what has fascinated the linguistic community about this people group? And again, I want to be clear. Every time I talk about this. My understanding of the Piraha culture and their language is through the lens of a white <laughs> um, missionary who went and learned their culture and then regurgitated what they learned back to me. So it, and unfortunately, due to the um, the, the nature of this of this culture and um, how many of those people have learned a second language and their access and interaction with social media, I haven't been able to find a person from the Piraha representing their own. Um, culture. So that's really challenging, too, because we're seeing this through the lens of other people, and it's always problematic. Um, But their language, like a variety of languages in the world, have something embedded into their grammar that requires burden of proof. Hmm. That's as crazy as it sounds, yes. So when they say something embedded in their grammar in order them to make a sentence that is understood... You have to demarcate where that information came from. That's interesting. Yes. So what do you think happens when you try to translate a text like the Bible? Yeah, it probably sounds like gibberish. (laughs) It's very difficult because none of the markers that this culture uses to demonstrate where this information comes from Mm -hmm. apply to the information in the Bible. The person sharing this information hasn't seen this happen. No one's living that told them that this happened. Mm -hmm. And because they weren't there, they didn't discern it from their environment. So it's almost, according to this person, this linguist, everything, impossible to translate. And for that person, in their experience, when they found a group of people to whom the Bible could not be functionally translated, that made them leave their faith and become an atheist. Oh, for the individual that was trying to convert the people yes. and could not convert them. I think his name is Daniel Everett. Let me double check on that, but I'm pretty sure his name is Daniel Everett. Let us know if it's one T or two. Okay. <laughs> As you're looking that up, I, I will mm-hmm. say that this is one of the uh, things that I think is most fascinating to me as I've dived more and more into this topic and looking at how, again, this inner speech is developed and how we process information and how we determine what is true and what's not true um, based on our experiences and the information we're told throughout child development. Did you find it? Yeah. Two points for Ravenclaw. It is Daniel Everett. 
Very good, very good. Don't Sleep There's Snakes, great book, very short, especially for voracious Mm -hmm. readers. Um, And it talks about, you know, his experience living there with his family and his children, which is fascinating in and of itself. Mm -hmm. um, Him learning this language, um, sort of what that means for the linguistic community. And, And there's lots of features of the language that are very fascinating. For example, they don't demonstrate like ordinal counting. So there's a number for nothing. There's a word, rather. There's a, uh, a word for nothing. Mm-hmm. There's a word for one, and there's a word for more than one. And that's the extent of it. And that's the extent of it because culturally, numbers outside of those concepts are not relevant mm-hmm. to the things that they do on a daily basis. Um, and what was happening is that they started to have some um, interaction with the the communities around them for trade purposes. And they were getting like gypped, <laughs> you know, because they you don't understand. Well, I don't want to say they didn't understand. Their their concept of what was was equal and fair was different than the people around them because they used different words and different cognitive schemas to describe those things. And I also want to apologize for using the term gypped because I'm just realizing now the etymological foundations of that word, and that is inappropriate that's okay i'm sure that everyone will forgive you i I, and i don't want to completely derail us too but i i also recognize that there was a civilization that doesn't see blue because they didn't have a word for it and so they saw multiple shades of green um in shades that we ourselves can't even see because we weren't raised there don't have the language which again just goes to that idea that language has such an impact on how we perceive our environment and perceive the world around us and predict the world around us. And if it's not offered to us through that sociocultural level in terms of our language, then we're blind to it. And and I'm hoping that's sure. fair to say and that's repeated correctly, but that's what I'm hearing even in regards to this is because they don't have the language to process the information that's being provided to them. They can't conceptualize it. They're like blind to seeing what it is that's being presented to them. So I want to expand on that a little bit and just kind of like describe it how I see it. Like, I understand what you're saying. I think I want to be clear that if so, when a, when a concept or a word or a grammatical um, convention mm-hmm. exists in language A, but does not exist in language B, we call it a lacuna. Okay. That's a technical term for it. Having said that, just because a lacuna exists in a language doesn't mean that the people who use that language don't demonstrate understanding of that concept. I'm going to provide some examples so it's a little bit easier to access. We have a word for virgin in English, but we don't have a word for not a virgin. But we understand what that is, right? Right. And I think that's reflective of what virginity means to English-speaking people. And my understanding is I have a a, um, a colleague who is from Romania. In Romania, there is a word for deep, but there is no word for shallow. So when you describe something as shallow, you just say it's not so deep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Um, I was talking with my son about this earlier because we were talking about direction and what makes north and south and left and right. I said, there are people in the world that don't use up, down, right, and left. Mm -hmm. They use north, south, east, and west. Mm -hmm. So all things are described with cardinality. That's north of me. That's southwest of me. Mm -hmm. Because that is very relevant to their culture. So I think the presence or absence of a word or a linguistic concept doesn't preclude a culture's ability to understand a concept. I think the way they might think about it may be different, but it doesn't mean they don't have access to it. So my, my, I guess I want to clarify, is it, can they perceive the concept even if they can understand it, if that, if that makes sense? Like, like understanding and perception, I guess, for me are two different things. I can understand that there might be a certain thing, but my ability to actually see that certain thing it may not be there. Like I, I have a friend who's colorblind and sure. he, he understands that there's colors, but he can't right. perceive them. Sure. So I, th- I don't think there's a firm yes or no on that. I think there are probably certain cognitive schemas that mm-hmm. if your culture doesn't engage with that on a regular basis, you may have difficulty like perceiving it. Like, for example, babies are born with a preference for the native language of their mother. Mm-hmm. 
because they hear it in the womb, right? And until about three, all babies can perceive and hear the difference between all available speech sounds. But now, like, for example, I have a colleague who their first language is Arabic, and they've been trying to teach me. I cannot hear the difference or perceive the difference between certain sounds. And I know that that will remain to be a barrier for me because the window of opportunity has been lost. So I certainly think that it's possible, like you were saying, there was a culture, I'm not familiar personally with that culture, that wasn't demonstrating a concept for blue, but it was a bunch of green that we don't distinguish between. There may well be a cognitive or visual barrier there because it's not relevant to their culture that i don't know the answer to but i think there are a lot of things that you know a culture or a language may not have a term or a workaround for that they can still understand it just doesn't it's not accessed or categorized the same way it is in another language okay so now we got all that out of the way and, mm -hmm. and trying to and hopefully you guys are still with us and we're just not like all over the map right now and trying to figure out the, the mysteries of life do you know much about predictive processing theory. Uh, it has no, to, please enlighten me. It, it has a little bit to do with um, top brain and um, upper brain like connections, and it has to okay. do and it has to do with um, how we have like this bottom up process where we have these perceptual signals that pick up things in our environment, but our, okay. but the things that we've been taught predict what those signals are supposed to mean. And so we okay. determine essentially like the meaning behind them based on our prediction. And, th and this has, um, has been a done a lot around the regards of like internal speech or inner speech and the way that we just perceive stuff. So if I see something okay. in my environment uh, with my perceptions, with my five senses, but I've been told that those types of things mean a certain thing, then it triggers inner speech to tell me that it's that certain thing. It's okay. What so... it is. This is, is kind of reminding me of the beginning of Dan McClellan's new book. Uh -oh. Did you, um, the Yahweh, the Divine Image? I have read I that book, and I completely forgot that was in the beginning of it. Yeah, I, that I... that this idea of this conceptualization of deity, I think that's mm -hmm. the terminology that Dan uses, um, may come from a we're going back to that word a primitive mm -hmm. <laughs> idea of you know, hearing something rustling in the bushes or a breeze and deciding that it is something with agency. Yes. And how, that how we develop reacting theory. to that. Yeah, how we develop theory of mind. Threat. Yeah, this mm -hmm. is this is what my PhD was in. Oh, fantastic. Okay, yes. That's reminding <laughs> me of that kind of thing. And that that, you know, eventually when we lived in cities and the, mm -hmm. the, the imminent threats were sort of removed from our daily lives that that may have morphed into this conceptualization of deity or divine mm -hmm. things or mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. cool yeah yeah <laughs> and, and me referring to this is coming out of the national library of medicine they wrote a, a paper and a book that kind of talked about this but my concern has always been with it is that when we have young children that are kind of imprinted with what um they should be what their predictions should be about the world, specifically in sure. regards to spirituality and belief systems and divinity. Um, they are then taking their perceptions, uh, the things they're picking up from their environment, and they're using those predictions that are given to them by authority figures to then identify that, which is then developing their inner speech. And sure. one of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about is this idea of those that have thoughts and they identify them as being divine in nature, coming from God, coming from ghosts, sure. coming from okay. the devil. Mm -hmm. um, and, whether or not this is, is there a possibility of the brain generating thoughts that don't come from the brain? Or do we see that is, right. there's mm -hmm. always activity occurring in the brain when there's thinking occurring, even if people try to say that's divine in nature? Is it, and mm -hmm. I know that I'm rambling a little bit here, but in my, my opinion, yeah, you know. it's coming from this predictive text. It's a bottom-up prediction from our perceptions, and they're just making the association going, oh, well, the people that are important in my life told me that these thoughts are God. And they told me that these thoughts are the Satan. And so when I perceive things in the environment, my prediction then just automatically associates that through the course of development and brain development. Um, but is there truth in that? Or is it, can God put thoughts in your brain? Do you have thoughts that just pop in that are coming from outside of your brain? Do we still see activity in the brain when those thoughts are coming in? I don't, I don't know. Does that make sense? <laughs> I, think, I think we're approaching um, something that might be more philosophical, but I'm willing to take a stab at it. Um, 
something that has come up often on like TikTok live streams or when I'm speaking with um, primarily, I don't want to say that. Uh, When I dialogue with people who participate in the major religions, when I say that I mean Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Um, The Abrahamic religions. Sure. (laughs) That term that like people don't like. Um, (laughs) The... um, they all have very different concepts of what a sin is. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think one thing that came up was, can thoughts be sinful? Yes. I've had this discussion recently too. Yeah. This comes up a lot. Um, And everyone's got a different answer and what their rationale is behind that. But I think that seems to be the underpinning of where people go with this. Like, if you're developing an inner dialogue and you are labeling good or bad thoughts as, you know, self-inspired or something outside of your own agency, um, and whether or not that is an error, a sin, something that's bad or not, I think may change the way that people view that. I think that's mm-hmm. probably my best summary of my thoughts on it, but I don't, you know, from a, from a technical cognitive standpoint, I couldn't, you know, I don't know what the research looks like. I think that's more your field. Okay. So I appreciate you teaching me about this because when I read that in the beginning of Dan's book, I was like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> never, never encountered anything like that. Mm-hmm. In my whole life, you know, I was like, I am this many days old when I realized that this was a concept because I didn't know that this was something that a, a phenomena that had been, you know, observed and, and studied in cognitive sciences. I it, it was endlessly fascinating. And I, I look forward to learning more about it from you and other people who are more in, in tune to that. Well, on that note, you'll be happy to know, which I probably have said this in my podcast before, that men have... Um, less activity in regions of the brain for theory of mind and autistic individuals have virtually none, which is why they don't believe in God because they don't put agency in immaterial and um, interesting. because they don't have those activity in those regions to cause those types of things. Um, and men are typically less religious or less spiritual than women because they have less activity there, which has a lot to do with um, our evolutionary development. Women were oftentimes in the hunter-gatherer societies engaging with other people in those close-knit communities, taking care of the children, thinking about what their husband was out doing, you know, chopping down wood, hunting, uh, mm-hmm. farming the fields, what have you. Well, before farming came about in the, the late Holocene or early Holocene era, but they were able to essentially engage and so they had to be able to pick up on other people's emotions, intentions, and interactions more frequently than men did who were oftentimes off doing solitary work. Um, and so they didn't develop those areas of the brain as much because they were hyper-focused on the compartmentalized work that they were doing away from the home. Uh, and so mm-hmm. you see that there are definitely individuals within uh, society that are more prone to spiritual actions that have more activity in regions of the brain that are associated with theory of mind um, opposed to other ones. And that's why I was so interested in the beginning of our chat in terms of asking questions about neurodivergency, why we see more frequency of that, why autism may be more frequent. Is it sure. a sign of humanity evolving further? Uh, oh, or, or I... stepping did... back? I, and I can't make those judgments. We have enough research on it. Or is it just us now identifying and um, labeling individuals better than we have ever before? And so I, I, I don't delve too much into my um, worldview <laughs> often. Yeah. But I, I fully agree that I think this this perceived influx of neurodivergency could be a consequence of evolutionary development in the social realm of the human species because i think that there is some degree of signaling and shift in the way our culture works where Mm -hmm. these social very fragile and nuanced social interactions are not essential to survival anymore well, and, and, that, and that is based off of my personal opinion and nothing that I do clinically or professionally, but that's that's how I feel about it, yeah. And the part that has stuck with me the most about that, which I think kind of adds to that argument, which I think I've repeated several times that you've mentioned, is that we have this primitive brain that is then kind of challenged by our socioculture interactions that impacts what regions are activated, what's utilized. I mean, you can study any type of neuroscience 
that is out there in terms of studies, and you can see how children's brains have little switches that flip on and off based on what their interactions are like in early childhood all the way up to the age of 12 when we have a pruning process and you start seeing those neuronal connections fall away and the stuff that works, works. And so mm -hmm. when you see a, a difference in regards to their socio-cultural interactions in the world and what's being flipped on and off, you, you do start to see that there's no longer an evolutionary need for some of the things that we've used prior. Uh, yes. Which I think is fucking fascinating, people. It's so fascinating if you understand what it is that we're talking about. Um, I think that, that there's a similar <laughs> mechanism there that we just described, which could explain the increase of people becoming, I guess, what they call like religious nuns, yeah, like N-O-N-E-S, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yep. religious nuns, like moving away from organized religion, because I think for those same reasons, the, the, the social requirement of it or benefit of these institutions and these mm -hmm. um, environments um, has, has lost its same weight in, in survival or benefit or whatever it is. And we could talk about that would be a whole other episode to talk about. <laughs> but uh, I, I think there might be similar underpinnings as to why we're seeing this shift uh, of people, you know, re leaving religion or, um, converting to different things or like we're just seeing a very big shift in, in all the things of, of that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think there's a similar type of thing happening there where yeah. it's not the socially, so social requirements are different. Yeah. It's yeah. not as socially beneficial or they're finding those needs being fulfilled through other avenues uh, that may be That's a, yes. secular mm -hmm. in nature. For sure. Yes. Yeah. Uh, That's a great point. You said one more thing and I know we're running out of time, but I, the, the thing that's going to stick with me for probably the rest of the night is looking at, I'm going to say Abrahamic religions. Um, that's okay. Because I, I, I very much want to separate them from the, the Indus Valley, Hinduistic, Buddhist. Uh, oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, that, <laughs> they are a separate uh, schema for sure. Yeah. But I, I, you said that they perceive sins as being different um, mm -hmm. in their different cultures. And that says so much to me to whether or not God is speaking through them um, in terms of those voices coming into their heads. It, it, for me, it fulfills more of that predictive processing and their perceptions and their own inner speech, identifying those things and labeling them in terms mm -hmm. of trying to determine what is God's voice in my head and what is not God's voice in my head. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and just thinking that in many ways they're following the same text, even though they come from different cultures, they're following... Yes. I'm going to say it. You guys can hate me. They're following the same God and they're getting different messages. And, and to me, that is a sure indicator that this is not God's voice in their head. And you guys can go do some wonderful reading on the hearing the voice of God from this uh, National Library of Medicine that talks about auditory and visual hallucinations and what prompts these within our spiritual experiences. Uh, but the, the biggest thing of that is that even if you're not audibly hearing it or visually seeing something, if you start identifying that inner voice as being one or the other, and you practice this long enough, especially in early childhood development, it becomes very much a reality for you later on in adult life. Interesting. Yeah. It's really interesting. You have to send me, you have mentioned a couple, um, while we were talking, a couple of different articles of, of interest when you get a chance, no rush. You can email them to me. I would love to take a look at them so I can better understand, you know, kind of what's going on in the at research. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm excited that you've read Dan's book. I actually have it on yes. my desktop. I, I read it about two months ago. <laughs> it's, it is a revelation, if I may use that word. It, it is also a tomb of a book. Um, <laughs> so that's why I forgot yeah. that was in the beginning, because I, I want to say it's like 300, 400 pages. Like it's, it, it is it is quite dense. Um, it was definitely the kind of thing I uh, had to like take the highlighter out, you know. Yeah. <laughs> we mark that down for later. Uh, you know, let me go back to that. And I, I want to go back through it because I kind of did like a speed run. Um, so I could, you know, get familiarized with it because I got the opportunity to talk to him about his book with um, Captain Deadpool. Mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to make sure that I was completely up to date what's going on there so I could ask questions and be on the same page. But I'd like to go back and, and more in depth look at um, some things. I've been reading some other things, some TikTok creators like dissertations and stuff. So mm -hmm. I've been a little bit like, deep in that um, and asking them questions about that. But yeah, it is 
wonderful book. Anyone who's listening to this or watching this, please, Dan's book is available for free as a PDF file. I mean, what more could you ask for? So you could even go through and just search for like certain things you're interested in. I mean, anything you can think of is going to be in there. And it really, you know, integrates religion with cognitive sciences on the foundation of language. And it, it's just fascinating for people like us and i'm sure anyone who's listening to this show is interested in the same thing so yeah. i'll have to bring dan on the, the show i haven't even talked to him about it him and our friends we, we've chatted a couple of times but i'll have to bring him on and, and have a conversation with him i've taken his classes too which are phenomenal you've not sat in any of his seminars i have um, not had an opportunity yet i think i'm really missing out i'd like to carve out some time for that yeah they're extremely well done i've done one on the origins of yahweh as well as the origins mm -hmm. of satan in the bible which are things that were both central to my deconstruction and hearing him talk about it just i know that he is very scholarly in his presentation um and he is not leaning one way or another in his presentations towards uh atheism or spirituality he just tries to give you the facts of what he knows from an archaeological standpoint but the things that he shared in there kind of confirm like oh yeah this is what i found too and i'm glad to hear that it's coming from someone else from a very scientific perspective sure. so yeah i really appreciate his approach and i i kind of thanked him for showing me how to set a boundary on social media about like your identity politics and also like what your, you know, your wheelhouse and what you're allowed to talk about. Most of my content of what I got most of my viewers out of on TikTok has to do with me talking about um, what, what scriptural translation looks like. Not that I'm an expert by any means. I know I tell people I'm not an expert in Koine Greek. I'm not an expert in Hebrew, but I, I do know a lot about how language works. So I'm going to try to explain this word, you know, why it's translated, the different variations, what that may look like from a grammatical standpoint, and then you can do that with that what you will. Mm -hmm. um, and on Twitter, I have, it's hapexagomenon of the day. So I talk about words that occur only one time in the entire text and what makes them challenging to um, translate. That is fascinating. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up, Imus. Let people know where they can Great. find you at, where they can connect with you and, and get some of this information. There's, if you just type in IMAS, you'll, I'll pop up on everything, <laughs> mostly Twitter and uh, TikTok. I, I kind of got rid of the uh, other things. <laughs> All right. And I appreciate everyone hanging out with us again on Gods of Tomorrow. Please go out there, be the best versions of yourself, whatever you think your future self needs to be to just really embody compassion and love and kindness. Try to be that person today and your future self will thank you for it. And as always, do what the fuck you will. Oh, 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 oh,